welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I will not mind be done. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Steve. Sobriety 101. Um, we are going through the white book with special attention to the instructions and the concept of following the instructions, um, which for some reason for the sexaholic needs to be explicitly pointed out sometimes over and over and over for us to get the concept, even though we easily get the concept in other applications, such as following a recipe to bake a cake, or following the instructions to assemble a piece of furniture from Ikea, or even uh, a computer circuit board, something as complex as that. Some of us are easily able to do that, or even program a computer and give it very specific instructions to follow to achieve a particular goal and yet for some reason when we apply that very uh, well understood knowledge of how to follow instructions to the program of recovery our slippery minds find ways to forget what following instructions means Um, cunning baffling and powerful is right so um, let's um, Start with some of our regular readings. Um, Zachary, would you please read the problem? Sure. Page 203. Hey, Zachary, I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Zachary. The problem. Many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw on the outsides of others. Early on, we came to feel disconnected from parents, from peers, from ourselves. We tuned out with fantasy and masturbation. We plugged in by drinking in the pictures, the images, and pursuing the objects of our fantasies. We lusted and wanted to be lusted after. We became true addicts. Sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency relationships, and more fantasy. We got it through the eyes. We bought it, we sold it, we traded it, we gave it away. We were addicted to the intrigue, the tease, the forbidden. The only way we knew to be free of it was to do it. Please connect with me and make me whole, we cried with outstretched arms. Lusting after the big fix, we gave away our power to others. This produced guilt, self-hatred, remorse, emptiness, and pain. And we were driven ever inward, away from reality, away from love, lost inside ourselves. Our habit made true intimacy impossible. We could never know real union with another because we were addicted to the unreal. We went for the chemistry, 
the connection that had the magic because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Fantasy corrupted the real. Lust killed love. First addicts, then love cripples. We took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves. Conning ourselves time and again that the next one would save us, we were really losing our lives. Exactly. From the point of view of following instructions, there's actually very detailed instructions in the reading of the problem which Zachary just read. Um, we generally don't think of them as, as instructions, um, but when we read program literature, we can find instructions whenever they say we did something or, um, you know, we took an action um, or if we did A, B, and C, then so and so happened. These actions uh, can be taken as instructions. Now, what we have here in the problem is a set of instructions on how to pursue lust into the disease of sexaholism. And yet, these are the instructions that we want to follow, but these are the instructions that all of us have followed. In fact, we followed them without even having the written instructions to follow. We came up with the instructions on our, by ourselves without any help. And this is part of our disease. Um, but it's useful to see that these are the things that we did um, in order to pursue our disease. And if we continue doing these things that are listed in the problem, then we will uh, be continuing to follow the instructions of a lust-driven program for living, which is what the disease is. So, on the other hand, when we read the solution, uh, we can look at the things that are in the solution, the actions, and see that they are the instructions for a uh, uh, God-driven program for living. Lauren, would you read that, please? Yeah, Lauren Sexaholic. The solution, we saw that our problem was threefold, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Healing had to come about in all three. The crucial change in attitude began when we admitted we were powerless, that our habit had us whipped. We came to meetings and withdrew from our habit. For some, this meant no sex with themselves or others, including not getting into relationships. For others, it also meant drying out and not having sex with the spouse for a time to recover from lust. We discovered that we could stop, that not feeding the hunger didn't kill us, that sex was indeed optional. There was hope for freedom, and we began to feel alive. Encouraged to continue, we turned more and more away from our isolating obsession with sex and self and turned to God and others. All this was scary. We couldn't see the path ahead except that others had gone that way before. Each new step of surrender felt it would be off the edge into oblivion, but we took it. And instead of killing us, surrender was killing the obsession. We had stepped into the light, into a whole new way of life. The fellowship gave us monitoring and support to keep us from being overwhelmed, a safe haven where we could finally face ourselves. Instead of covering our feelings with compulsive sex, we began exposing the roots of our spiritual emptiness and hunger, and the healing began. As we faced our defects, we became willing to change. Surrendering them broke the power they had over us. We began to be more comfortable with ourselves and others for the first time without our drug. Forgiving all who had injured us and without injuring others, we tried to right our own wrongs. At each amends, more of the dreadful load of guilt dropped from our shoulders until we could lift our heads, look the world in the eye, and stand free. 
we began practicing a positive sobriety, taking the actions of love to improve our relations with others. We were learning how to give, and the measure we gave was the measure we got back. We were finding out what none of the we were finding what none of the substitutes had ever supplied. We were making the real connection. We were home. So these are the uh, a summary of the, some of the instructions that are in the steps, the program for a living that really works. And just looking back over this reading, we can see some of the action verbs that they took, which we can take as instructions for our own living. They admitted they were powerless. They came to meetings and withdrew from their habit. They stopped feeding the hunger. They turned more and more away from the isolating obsession. They surrendered step by step. They faced themselves and exposed the roots of their spiritual emptiness and hunger. They faced their defects and surrendered them. They forgave all who had injured them and tried to right their own wrongs. They practiced a positive sobriety. These are all things that are part of the solution, that are instructions. And if you are failing to recover, the big book says those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. And it goes on to say usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Um, The reason that I fail to recover is that I am not following these simple instructions. And moreover, my disease makes it impossible for me to be honest with myself and admit that I'm really not following the instructions. I will come up with some way of rationalizing, saying, well, I am following the instructions, but my ex-wife or the judge or you know my ex-employer or whatever, they aren't doing right. And I'll try to take the focus off myself. But when I face myself, as this tells me, and expose the roots of what's really going on with me, then uh, I um, get your help and God's help in being honest with myself. The impossibility in our fellowship is always dealt with by asking for help. I'm powerless. I can't do something, but I must. I must uh, uh, stop lusting and become sexually sober if I'm to live. Step one says, I I can't. I, I have to admit that I can't. The only next thing is to ask for help. And the remaining steps tell me how to do that. I have to ask for help from someone who has the power to help me. I can't just ask uh, a therapist or a, a relative or a girlfriend or a, a neighbor to help me. Um, if they're a human power, that's not sufficient. And so step two is about finding a, a sufficient power. Step three is about making a decision. And as we were in the meeting last night, we read that a decision is an act of the will. All of these Every time I follow an instruction, be it from the program for uh, lusting or the program for living, I perform an act of my will, make a decision. And so the steps spell out for us how to apply our will towards finding God's will and aligning our will by our own will. We choose to align our will with God's. And this tells us how to do it in, in detail. Um, now, let's go to page 77 and read this. This is very central to the, uh, what we're trying to, to learn here in, in uh, Sobriety 101. 
Um, Zachary, would you please read uh, from page 77 and 78? Sure. How it works, the practical reality. This title is adapted from Chapter 5 of Alcoholics Anonymous, entitled How It Works. The books Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, the 12 and 12, constitute the basic texts of the original 12-step program. The section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Our aim here is to try and get at the essential purpose of each step or group of steps so they can be readily put into action. The essay program is a program of action. Everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. But without reversing the deadly traits that underlie our addiction, there is no positive and lasting sobriety. To recover from a life based on wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, and spiritual death, requires a program of action that includes a fundamental change in attitude, character change, union, the true connection, self-awareness, and spiritual life. Working the principles of the steps as a new way of living has made this happen for us. No matter how well they are explained, understood, or believed, however, steps mean nothing unless they are actually worked out in our thinking and living. The steps don't work unless we work them. Okay, thanks, Zachary. Um, uh, This uh, points very clearly uh, in our white book. It points very clearly to uh, the... AA literature, the Alcoholics book, uh, big book known as Alcoholics, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, known as the Big Book, and the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions of Twelve and Twelve. Um, now these books, uh, describe the Big Book and the Twelve and Twelve, describe themselves in the following way. On pages twenty and twenty-nine of the Big Book, it states that the um, uh, the book contains clear-cut specific instructions on how to recover. Um, It also echoes this on page 45 where it says the main purpose of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. Um, The 12 and 12 describes itself in the foreword as uh, it reaffirms that the books, uh, that the steps are uh, a a way of living which if uh, uh, Practiced as such can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become usefully, happily and usefully whole. That's on page 15. And um, uh, it, it describes uh, the big book on page 17 of the 12 and 12 as the basic text. Uh, the 12 and 12 seeks to broaden and deepen the understanding of the uh, principles described in the big book. So our white uh, book tells us that our SA fellowship um, relies on the AA literature. There are some places where uh, and some, some individuals who have um, stated that um, this is SA, we don't need the AA literature and, um, um, and, and may in fact get quite upset if folks read from a big book or a 12 and 12 during an SA meeting. And um, I am told, I generally am am kind of a coward and don't confront people, but I've got some friends who are less cowardly than me, and they tell me that if you point this 
uh, page out, uh, uh, page 77, to the, um, uh, the, the folks that uh, seem to dislike the AA literature, that they'll become even more obsessed. And um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, um, also, uh, uh, we've seen less of these people around. There have been fewer people who don't like the AA literature, uh, and, and one member suggested that there might be a connection um, between the fact that folks aren't doing uh, the traditional essay program uh, when they ignore the AA literature. Why do I say the traditional essay program? The reason I say that is because Roy, the founder of Essay, um, got sober and started the Essay Fellowship in California um, where there were no SA meetings, he went to AA meetings. He had an AA sponsor, and he used the AA literature to work his program of recovery from lust. He was not an alcoholic. He was a sexaholic. And um, that is the tradition on which our fellowship is based. And so we want to stress this, um, the... the um, uh, uh, one of my AA teachers told me that if you want to take a, uh, if you want to keep a secret then the, from from uh, addicts, then the way to do it is to read it read it to them at every meeting. So, for instance, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. That's the secret, and um, uh, for some reason, uh, we need to have it drilled into our head. Um, even though we possess all of the intellectual faculties which would enable us to simply follow it uh, on common sense. So we're doing, we're, we're going to try to spell out the common sense here, and that's what we've been doing. Um, so we will refer frequently to the AA Big Book and the 12 and 12, uh, but we are uh, going through the um, White Book, and I believe last time we got up to page... Eighty-seven, and we have at the bottom where it says our lives have become unmanageable. We're finishing up step one. Before we begin, are there any general comments or questions? Complaints, objections. <laughs> this is Zachary. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Zachary. One one thing that kind of caught my attention, I didn't, I was at the meeting last night, but I didn't, didn't really jump out at me, but uh, it did today, was that, you know, to do the program of lust or the program of recovery, it's a decision of the willpower, but I feel like I always hear that I'm powerless, willpower gets me nowhere. Yeah, that kind of thing. So that was kind of a a weird kind of a weird thing for me. If you could elaborate on the differences. There. Okay. Well, let me let me try asking a question and and see if it if it connects for you. What do you decide to do when when you're pursuing a program of lust recovery? What do I decide to do? Uh-huh. I decide to do whatever I want to do. True, but one thing that about every sexaholic decides to do before coming to SA 
is they decide to quit acting out. Have you ever decided that? Yes. Me too. And my powerlessness is that when it comes to that particular decision, I have no power at all. That's what I have difficulty admitting. That that particular decision I can't make effectively. Now, on page 36 in the big book, sorry, page 39. Page 39 in the big book, there's a fellow named Frank. And Frank, uh, about five lines from the bottom of the page, it says, he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. That's a decision. He's applying his will to the uh, to the drinking problem. He's deciding to quit. And then the next sentence is, it never occurred to, to him that perhaps he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. This is what defines me as a sexaholic. That when I make this decision to quit, drinking altogether, acting out altogether, it's ineffective. Now, go over to page 42 and read, uh, again, uh, six lines from the bottom. You see where it says, but? Yes. Read that. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. Okay, here he's making a decision. What decision is he making? Uh, go through with the process of recovery. Which is? The 12 steps. That's right. He decides to work the 12 steps. Now, that is a decision that I can make effectively. And the um, just a few pages later, it says on page 44... To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not e- always easy alternatives to face. But the truth is, part of my admission of powerlessness boils down to the fact that those are my only two choices. I'd like to have some third alternative. But spiritual life is pretty drastic. I have to turn all this stuff over. I... I well, I don't want to die a sexaholic death, but, but let me see if I can find an easier, softer way. You know, um, and, and so that's part of the admission that I have to make is that, uh, you know, and it's also part of coming to believe that the, the, the real admission is a mission of hopelessness. There's absolutely no way that's humanly possible, either by myself or with a human power, to... Stop doing the thing that's killing me. I can't. C-A-N-T. Powerless. So, the only thing available to me, if I'm a true sexaholic, is this decision that Fred finally made. Did I say Frank? Anyway, um, uh, Fred finally made this decision uh, to go through with the process. He says... um, The program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. That was not easy. You know, so none of us apparently naturally want to do this. None of us find it easy, as simple as it is. As we pointed out already, it's as simple or simpler than reading the instructions in a cake recipe and baking a cake. 
um, which many of us can do quite well, even if we can't. There are other things that we follow the instructions for. Instructions on how to drive a car are much more complicated than the instructions on how to recover. But there is something wrong with our brains, even when we're not drinking, even when we're not lusting. Our brains do not work right with regard to this particular decision. And both the decision to stop drinking we cannot make successfully, and the decision to follow the process is one that we do not make without a great deal of willpower. It takes a great deal of willpower to overcome our obsession and, and choose this when we just don't want to do this any more than, you know, have you ever tried to, to pull, uh, uh, you know, a dog to the car when he knew he was going to the vet? <laughs> um, he did not want to go to the vet. Um, and that's how, um, that's how I um, surrender. Once you got me into the car, I, I and I crapped all over the seat covers, then then I, I was pretty much a good dog, even though I was pretty miserable looking for a while. Um, and um, that's you know that those are our stories. No one came here gracefully. No one kind of waltzed in on a good day and say, yeah, I'm tired of watching football this afternoon. I think I want to do something to get more spiritual. And um, so we all we all tend to come in on a losing streak. Um, so, did I address the substance of your problem, um, your question? Our problem. <laughs> yes. Okay. Cool. All right, then. So, we are on page, what is it, 87? Where it says our lives have become manageable. Who would volunteer to read, please? I'll read it. Hey, Lauren. Our lives had become unmanageable. For those who enter recovery through this program, the the realization of powerlessness becomes coupled with growing awareness of personal unmanageability, the fact that something is out of kilter at the core of the self, for it is our very self that is turned from life. If we are content with ourselves, simply minus the compulsion, there can be no recovery. Recovery is more than mere sobriety. Deep inside, we always knew there were other things wrong with us, and it turns out our addictions were really trying to keep us from facing them. This is why, once the initial surrender of steps 1, 2, and 3 is made, steps 4 through 10 deal with exposing, confessing, and righting our wrongs. In sobriety, we quickly learn that we are just as powerless over other defects that begin to surface, resentment, for example, as we ever were over lust, sex, and dependency. The fact that these other problems aren't necessarily as obvious as lust can seduce us into the notion we're really okay. We can go for stretches of time without acting out on them, but when things go wrong, watch out. They burst forth with a fearsome vengeance and fury. Bad feelings boil up as if out of nowhere. Feelings that are against others, that isolate us and force us back into the prison house of the self. We'd rather believe such outbursts are simply results of what others are doing to us, unwilling to see that we think and act badly because there's something wrong inside us, as though bitter waters can spring up from a pure well. What great relief to finally come to the place where we can say, not only I'm powerless over lust, but I'm powerless over me. 
It's okay to be absolutely powerless over self. This is where we join the human race. And best of all, just as the admission of powerlessness over lust is the key to our sexual sobriety, so the admission of powerlessness over our defects is the key to our emotional sobriety. Victory, victory through powerlessness by the grace of God. What a glorious, liberating discovery. This is the point at which our self-honesty begins to grow, where, recover, where recovery begins. But thank God, our defects are revealed to us progressively. In the fellowship of identification, acceptance, and forgiveness, we are able to bear the realization without destroying ourselves or resorting to one of our drugs to escape. Our God is patient and loving and kind with us, as we must learn to be with others. The program calls those who are tired and weighed down with the burden of self, those who want to be rid of the load but can't. It calls those who are trapped in the prison of self but know no way out. A broken and contrite spirit, the spirit of the first step, is the key that opens the door and sets us free. Okay. So this is a summary of the step one section that we've previously read. <clears throat> and <clears throat> while it has the instructions in um, uh, summary form and kind of abstract, we, we are going to want to, to find specific instructions. Let's practice and look, go through this list and identify the instructions. Anybody want to start at the beginning and, and tell me where the first thing that they did something or uh, uh, either either implied or uh, explicit. You see an instruction? Okay, I see an implied instruction at the end of the first paragraph. If we are content with ourselves, simply minus the compulsion, there can be no recovery. So if I want to be content with myself, you know, uh, without the the uh, without acting out, and I will not recover. So the implied instruction is: don't be content with mere sobriety. Okay, and it says we always knew that there were other things wrong with us. Uh, I, I don't know. Is this true? Do I know that? I think I, I think I know that at the moment, um, deep inside. Do, do you all know that? Sure. About yourselves. Yeah. So, basically, deep inside, even if I'm fooling myself, I know that there's something besides acting out that's wrong with me. It's not just the acting out. Um, and and that I was uh, trying to keep us from facing, the, the addiction is trying to keep me from facing those other things. Facing those other things becomes an implied instruction. The surrender is there. Exposing, confessing, and writing. So these are instructions. Um, uh, so a lot of these are kind of instructions, uh, you know, to, of, of what we <laughs> fail to admit when we're in our active disease. Okay, and we come to the place where we can say, I'm powerless over lust and I'm powerless over me. Um, these are good things for me to say out loud. These are good things for me. You know, I can say I'm powerless over lust once and then go on living with my life. That's not what this is about. 
This is about saying it uh, on an ongoing basis to affirm this fact that is so slippery for my brain. Um, I cannot just, just decide to not act out. I cannot just decide, you know, to uh, not be selfish. Um, I cannot just decide to be honest with myself and others. Of myself, I cannot do these things. Um, and, um, you know, of myself, I can do nothing. Um, the... the, the um, this admission you know, is not just a verbal admission. It is an admission. If, it, if it's a sincere admission, certain things follow you. If I say, I cannot work this calculus problem. I cannot work it. If, if I say, I cannot do it. Well, if I, if I need the answer, well, then I will ask someone for help. That, that, that just happens automatically. I don't even have to think about it. But if I say I cannot do it and then I keep trying to do it myself, then you would say he has not really admitted that he can't do it. And so I, I, I as, you know, encounter a lot of people with our disease who say, you know, who say, oh, yeah, I, I, I admit I'm powerless over lust and my life has become unmanageable. And yet they keep trying to... You know, stop on their own. Jim, at the top of page 36, is on his way to his next relapse. But he doesn't know it. He thinks he's driving out in the country to find someone to buy a car. How do we know something's wrong? Well, he had a fight with his boss, and he's telling himself it's nothing serious. He, he, he tells himself, I have no intention of drinking. Now, Whenever I say that, I am not admitting that I'm powerless. You know, having no intention of drinking is not a treatment for alcoholism. Having no intention of lusting is not a treatment for sexaholism. That fact means nothing other than the fact I'm trying to convince myself I can do it alone. I can just decide not to act out. I don't have an intention. Therefore, I'm just not going to decide that. And then I'll be fine. Well, if I've truly admitted that, there's no way I'm going to believe that. If I've truly admitted that I can't decide to stop acting out successfully, I will never be satisfied. Oh, I have no intention of lusting. But he does that over and over. We do this over and over. You know, before we make a sincere admission. And if you try to tell me I haven't really admitted I'm powerless over lust, I'll get teed off. I will get quite teed off and defensive. Because I'm constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself. So I need lots and lots of help just to do these simple things. Okay. Um, You know, the thing is... When I say this, I'm like, gosh, am I insulting people's intelligence by saying this simple stuff over and over? And it's like, I got to admit, I'm not the, you know, I'm not the dumbest person I've ever met. It took me six years to hear this, to hear this stuff. And then once I started hearing it, I kept hearing it again and going, oh, I can't believe it's taken me six or eight or ten years to hear that. I've heard that, I've read that a thousand times, and yet now I'm finally getting it. And, 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 and the reason is, is that part of my 
delusion is that I am uh, constantly understanding things from an intellectual point of view and completely missing them from a living point of view. You know, you, I, you know, it's easy, it's easy to um, to understand that if someone has never had an orgasm in their life, they will never understand what it is they can read all the textbooks in the world and until they've actually experienced one they will not understand what it means the same thing is true of the spiritual experiences that I have in working the steps if I have not yet had a spiritual experience sufficient to produce recovery from sexaholism there is no way I'm going to figure out what it should feel like how to evaluate whether or not I'm having it or not. The only thing to do is to look at the results. Am I sober? Am I growing in my ability to be uh, happy and useful in sobriety? Well, then, then I'm, I must, I'm probably doing something right. And if that's not happening, there's got to be something that I can change, you know, if I'm willing. So, okay. Any, any, anything else about that? We've got some background noise here. Um, shall we continue? Or are there any questions or, or comments? Experience, strength, and hope. Identification. Non-identification. You think this applies to you? Yes. Lauren? Yeah, totally. <coughs> who's, who's up? Sure. All right. Here. Step two. Step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Not God. We can almost hear newcomers say, I thought this was a self-help program. What do you mean I can't stay sober, joyous, and free without God? Or, as the 12 and 12 says, Look what you people have done to us. Having reduced us to a state of absolute helplessness, you now declare that none but a higher power can remove our obsession. Some of us won't believe in God. Excuse us. We're, we're sorry. That's okay. Here we go. Some of us won't believe in God. Others can't. And still others who do believe that God exists have no faith whatsoever. He will perform this miracle. Yes, you got us over the barrel, all right. But where do we go from here? Page 25 of the 12 and 12. The first three words of step two give us the key to this dilemma. We came, we came to, we came to believe. We began by simply coming to meetings. Then, somewhere along the line, we came to. We awoke to the reality of our situation, came out of emotional and spiritual shock, and came to the reality of a power at work in the lives of others who were sober. Then we came to believe. For many of us, this translated into the startling, though welcome, conclusion that we were not God. When we cast ourselves 
on the mercy of the group, we are, in effect, resorting to a power greater than ourselves. After all, we admit, many of these people are staying sexually sober, and some had it worse than we. More than this, we feel a strength in presence in fellowship. The spirit of the meeting often seems to be greater than the sum of its members. This gives us hope and draws us into life. Soon we find ourselves making our own personal connection. Here's how one person put it. At first, all I believed in was my sickness and lack of faith. Soon, however, I was telling myself, I hope it's all true. Then I began acting as if it were, and faith in the program itself was established. As I became more honest and open to the truth in others, I I came to believe that others had faith. Finally, genuine faith in a higher power came ever so slowly as a God of my very own and a faith that worked for me. Okay. There is a critical instruction. Maybe more than one, but I'm focusing on one in particular. In that, in that, it, those, that quote that you just read, Zachary. Do you have any idea what I'm getting at? This is what, what in medical school they would call a read my mind question. Um, I began acting as if it were. Yes. Why is that important? Um, I'm going to try reading your mind and guess that it's important because you you don't just say, well, I'm going to believe now. I mean, you have to start somewhere. That's right. That's right. Um, the the um, acting as if is the key to, or I, one key, and maybe the, the central key, <clears throat> to my lack of honesty with myself. I have said that I believe many things. I have said that I value many things. But if I tell you I really value our friendship, and then I treat our friendship like yesterday's newspaper. My actions speak louder than my words. 80% of communication is nonverbal. And my life as a sexaholic is defined by very sincere lies that I tell myself and others about what's important to me and about what I believe and what my priorities are. If you listen to me, you know, describe these things, you'll see this, you know, fairly nice looking picture, you know, of, you know, good, good values and, uh, you know, altruistic motives and all sorts of things. If you then line that up with my actions, I am not acting as if I believe those things. I am not acting as if I value those things. And that is one of the fundamental disconnects in, in my living. And the more I live that way, the more I become incapable of differentiating the true from the false. Um, I'm seeing everything through the lens of that own, my own distortion. And, uh, you know, everything is backwards. Down is up and left is right. And straight ahead is reverse. So anyway, it's very important. And in particular, it's important for step two. Any idea why? Zachary's been a good sport. What about you, Lauren? Pick on you for a second. Well, um, 
Because I'm not necessarily going to believe coming in that I'm going to be able to be sane. Why not? Because all of my experience indicates otherwise. <laughs> Got a long, <laughs> a long track record that refutes that. Yeah, and if I'm sane sounding idea, and if I've been believing in God at any part of my life, then I'm likely to put the blame on Him. If I'm not admitting that, you know, my actions is out of line with it, I've been like, well, here I am. I've been doing this and I've been doing that, and you know, nobody understands me and nobody loves me and God doesn't care about me. That's part of my delusion. So, yeah, sincerely speaking, I, I, I'm at my most honest when I'm saying, you know, I don't believe, I don't believe in this God stuff or, you know, I don't really believe that, that he, he cares about me because that's the kind of belief that my old way of living produces. God doesn't love me. You don't love me. You're all out to get me. I'm only going to get what I want or need by hook or crook, um, and, and, and if I'm honest with you, you'll betray me, you'll screw me over, etc. and so forth. That's how acting, that, that old acting works. I acted as if all those things were true in my disease, and I've come to believe them. So if that's where I'm starting from, I can't just change what I believe. You know, any more than if you tell me the sky is not blue, I can just decide to believe that. Okay, the sky's not blue. You know, I, I believe very firmly the sky is blue. And if you tell me it's not, it's going to take more than just a decision on my part to change that belief. Probably I'm not going to decide it at all. I'm going to decide to argue with you. Um, so, so, yes, this is very important. And moreover, it's life-saving. There's something in the 12 and 12. If I can find it, um, it's very good. It's very important. Page 26. It says, Alcoholics Anonymous does not demand that you believe anything. And if I go to the big book, I go to page 46. It says, We found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commence to get results. That's what, that's what is key here. This is why acting as if is so important. Acting as if is a manifestation of a willingness to believe. Okay, I do not believe the sky is blue, but I can lay aside my prejudice and, okay, and say, okay, I'm willing to believe the sky is blue uh, and, and see what happens. If I act as if I can do an experiment, how would I change my way of living if the sky were blue? If the sky were not blue? Uh, you know, in that particular example, you know, uh, let's leave that one aside and say, how would I act if I believed God could restore me to sanity? God could and would if I sought Him. Well, how would I act? And, and then I can take those actions as an experiment, even though I don't have the feeling of trust or of belief. And this is a sto- uh, there's a scriptural story about two guys, and one of them was told, go and do something. And he said, oh, sure. And then he went, and then he changed his mind, and he did something else. And then the second guy said, okay, so-and-so didn't do it, so now you go and do it. And the guy said, no way. 
I don't want to do that. And then he wandered off. But then he changed his mind and he went and did it. And the question is asked, which one of these did the will of his boss? And obviously it's the second guy. And that's what acting as if is like. I don't have to want to do something. I don't have to. Willingness is not a feeling. When we're talking about it in, in, in this context, you've got in the world, you know, willingness can mean whether or not I want to do it. But wanting or not wanting to do it is regardless. My, one of my AA teachers went to his steps, went to his sponsor very early and said, Jerry, that was his sponsor's name, he said, I don't want to work the 12 steps. And Jerry said, well, okay, Scott, that's fine, as long as you do them. <laughs> and, and Scott didn't care for that too much, but um, that he ended up doing that. And that is willingness. You know, so, anyway, you know, I was taught that if I just, you know, did the dishes and I pouted and I slammed it around and that wasn't good enough. And it's, maybe it... Maybe it wasn't. I, I'm sure I deserve to be punished for some of my passive-aggressive behavior. But but if I will just do this, these simple instructions, I, I, I get the same results anybody else gets. Um, let's pause for a second. Okay, go for it. Lauren, Lauren, six all it. Lauren, the cynics. All right. Okay. This is going to make one more noise before I. Say you want to. Actually, I can do it. We can just cut it and. No, we're going to have the. uh, Have the the ring. Who knows? God might use that to get somebody sober. I don't know. All right. The cue on the tape that this is really important. Right? That's right. <laughs> Somebody was sleeping, you know, and now they're awake. So good. No, so the sentence that um, begins at the end of eighty nine and goes on the next page. It says, "We awoke to the reality of our situation, came out of emotional and spiritual shock, and came to the reality of a power at work in the lives of others who were sober." Um, that really stood out to me because it was especially that part about emotional and spiritual shock. Because um, I spent several months before I got into SA, <clears throat> I spent four or five months in another program that I'm, and I don't want to run it down. It's just the, the reality was that at the time it felt like we were enabling or um well, I guess what it goes back to is that, again, the previous page on 88 talks about self-honesty is where we begin to grow, is where recovery begins. And, um, man, I felt like the self-honesty was not there. It was one of those things where we would just show up hoping that we had acted out less than the week before, and if we did, we thought that was growth. And... Um, and that stuff got blown up when I came into SA because there were people who were staying sober. And like it says, further down on 90, you know, many of these are staying sober and some had it worse than we. And um, and so I knew that, that part of my initial self-honesty, I think, was I don't have an excuse anymore. Because if these guys are recovering, then I ha- there's it all comes back on me. And... Um, and, and what I'm doing or not doing or whatever because 
I just had not had that much destruction in my life at that point. I didn't have a fire under my butt at all. I mean, honestly, um, nobody knew I was in recovery other than in the rooms and a therapist. And um, hadn't lost much other than a will to live, <laughs> which is enough. <laughs> but that's, that's about it, you know. I couldn't. Nobody else could probably put a finger on stuff in my life. I'm sure they could. I'm sure they could see that I was miserable. But um, but regardless, um, so just uh, that that kind of stood out to me. I don't remember. I remember talking recently about this idea of a time frame of when things clicked or didn't click, and I can't remember it well. Those first few months are so foggy, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, I don't think that's necessarily my memory. I think that was coming awake, coming to. But um, definitely remember coming to that reality of a power at work in the lives of others who were sober. And I'm not sure if I would have associated it with God or anything at that point, but I couldn't refute the fact that crazy guys were not acting out when I was. <laughs> and I, so, that's all I got right now. And how long have you been sober? Five years. I guess five and a half. Five and a half years. So today. Five and a half years today. Okay, well. Is that October to March? That's six months, right? Happy half birthday. Something like that. Well, good. Uh, no, no, October to March would be five months. So yeah, I think it's next right. month. I was going to say that seemed quick. Well, um, yeah, um, so what you're doing is working for today. Yeah. So let's, let's try doing it for another 24 hours. Yeah. All right. Um, Are we surrendering, surrendering the truth? Yes, sir. I'll start that. Surrendering the truth about ourselves. The second half of step two could restore us to sanity was not hard for many of us to acknowledge. Our first step had revealed at least some of our irrational thinking and behavior, and we slowly began to realize that such loss of control was a form of insanity. But just as an unsound mind was the inevitable byproduct of our attitudes and wrongs, its healing would be the byproduct of working the steps. There is great promise here. Restoration to sanity becomes a very real hope because we see it happening around us. Sanity is contagious. Sometimes the program comes harder to those who are believers, quote-unquote believers, than to those who never had any faith at all or who had lost it. This often holds true for those who have been in other 12-step programs before coming to SA. One might think that previous religious devotion or success in quitting another addiction would make it easier for one to gain sexual sobriety, but this is not necessarily the case. Often such members find they must start from square one, as though they had no faith or had never heard of the program. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link, the saying goes, and, and lack of surrender in any of our known defective areas blocks the grace of God and makes it impossible to forge any chain of enduring spiritual and emotional strength. Success in quitting other addictions seduced many of us into believing we were really working the program and had everything together. The unmanageability of our lives proved otherwise. Many of us merely switched addictions. 
Knowledge and pride were our chief obstacles here. Knowing the truth, or knowing the program, often being self-styled authorities and even sponsoring others, only kept us from changing our attitudes and righting our wrongs. Knowledge never gave us power. We had left lust, sex, and relationships out of the exposure, surrender, and recovery process, which simply meant we could not fully recover. No wonder we were still uncomfortable. Half measures availed us nothing. It seems harder for some who have been sober for years from other addictions to admit they are in denial in the sexaholic area than it is for newcomers who have never even heard of the steps. This is simply one of the realities of our experience. We discovered the hard way that we had to leave our knowledge and pride outside the door when we entered. We could only join with our fellow members and be a part of when we identified on the basis of our current addiction, powerlessness, and distress. We identify with each other at the point of our weaknesses. Our wrongfulness and our wrongs are what bring us together and to God. Many of us have already been through the alcohol, drug, pill, and overeating scenes. We've become aware of our compulsive approach to almost everything in our lives. There's no place left to go except to face the truth about ourselves, stop resorting to other addictions and forms of lust we think we can get away with, and surrender to our God. Okay. Well, all right. Um, Questions, comments, uh, feedback? More than sexaholic. I definitely um, had a faith before I came into the program. um, um, But I remember the disturbance of being confronted with the reality that my actions and my so-called faith were very at odds with each other. Um, didn't I didn't throw my faith out with the bathwater or anything like that, but um, it still was one of those sobering moments um, of self-honesty again. And um, it wasn't painless to, to go through that. But um, I needed to. I had to do that. And, um, yeah, I relate to a lot of this in here. That's all I got. Okay. Zachary, anything? I could relate to that too. Having a faith before coming in here, thinking, you know, I, you know, know God for the people in the. Recording, I did air quotes around that. Uh, <laughs> the, it, uh, yeah, and, and realizing in the program that I don't really know him or have as good of a relationship as I thought I did <laughs> or would like to have, um, that's definitely, I, I can relate to that. Yeah, I think that's real important. Um, yeah, there were three main things that I'm, I'm 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 seeing here. One is that is that thing which relates to acting as if, by the way, for me, you know that that um, and that self honesty thing that that you know I believe in God and yet I'm acting as if I'm an atheist. You know, I believe God is all these wonderful things and you know worthy of so much trust, and yet I do not act as if I trust Him to take care of me. 
I act as if I will only be taken care of if I do these things by myself. And and so that's 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 a a, a key thing. Um, it says in the next paragraph that knowledge never gave us power, um, and that is also a very difficult thing. Um, knowledge serves the will, and if I'm directing my will towards the disease, then my knowledge serves my disease. That's my experience. It's also true of other resources, such as finance and emotional support and uh, opportunities. If I am directing my will along the lines of a lust-driven program and a self-driven program, then knowledge and all these other things go to the credit of the disease. And, um, you know, my power either comes from God or goes to my disease. (laughs) Those are the two options. Um, So, uh, God is everything or he is nothing. Uh, What was our choice to be? I can't choose whether God is or God isn't. But, how I choose to live, I can choose to act as if God is, or I can choose to act as if God is not. And that is my choice, and that defines the, re, re, uh, the way I experience reality. You know, my, my belief will come to conform to my way of living. Either way, that's what it did in my disease, and that's what it does in my recovery. My Belief will come, I will come to believe whatever conforms to my way of living in time. And so that is, is um, hard <laughs> to admit, as it says later in the paragraph. And then finally, the importance of identification. We identify with each other at the point of our weaknesses. And, you know, thank God that you all weren't struck sober and recovered and, and cured in a moment because you would have been utterly unable to help me and to reach me. Um, the only way I was able to even hope that this program might work for me is seeing that you had been where I was. Now, that you understood that your experiences and your stories gave me the points of identification to see, wow, that's exactly how I felt. That's true for me too. And then I was able to hope and then to act as if you know, this, this, uh, this program could work for me. And um, so that identification piece is really, really important. It happens in Bill's story. On page eleven, no. here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. 
My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past, here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. Now we already have talked about how Bill and Ebby drank together over on page 9. So you know he identifies with Ebby and his drinking. You know, they were best drinking buddies. And, you know, even when, you know, he said that the guy was coming over, you know, he said, you know, I've got religion. Uh, he was convinced that he was going to uh, out-drink the, his, his preaching and then that Ebby would eventually join him in, in drinking. But that did not happen. And he saw and, and believed, you know, at the top of page 12, the living example of his friend. He still had the old prejudice until his friend gave him this freedom to say, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Which means, I tried so hard to believe in other people's conceptions of God. And that doesn't work because I can't authentically, you know, grasp uh, the things that other people take uh, for granted from, you know, their experience or whatever brought them to that, that to that belief. But if I can begin, uh, you know, more simply, if I can just take some basic examples, like there's this one particular um, scripture for me that I began with, you know, and said, I can't believe all this other stuff, but I can believe this one thing. And I just held on to that. Uh, or I can try to believe this one thing. And, and so, you know, the italics on page 12, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. So that gets, uh, that begins with the identification. Over on page 18 in the big book, it says, the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. And this is a very important thing. It says, properly armed with facts about himself. Bill didn't go uh, to meet Dr. Bob and tell Dr. Bob about him. Dr. Bob's drinking and about Dr. Bob's problem and, and what Dr. Bob needed or, or, or you know what would work for him or what wouldn't work for him. He just described himself. Dr. Bob identified. said, this guy drinks like I drink. And then yet he was six months sober. So, so um, that's so important. And um, it's, the, it's the life of our, our fellowship. It's the thing that makes... The, the spiritual message go from one person to another is this identification. So um, anyway, um, we're getting close to being out of time. Anybody have any closing remarks? We have finished step two today. Make a note, and we can start with step three next time. I think after we do step three, we're going to start looking at the instructions in the big book um, more closely, because I think, as the white book points out, um, you know, and and the twelve and twelve, even though the twelve and twelve is to deepen the understanding of what's in in the in the big book, but the big book contains the basic instructions for for the program of living. So, it's very important. All right. 
Are we ready? Yeah. Let's close with a prayer. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.